reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 3, which can be found on page 5 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Evening, everyone. Uh, 
I wonder if you'd turn back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. It's on page 5 of those Pew Bibles. Shall we pray as we come and look at the living and active Word of God? Let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Our Father, we thank you that all your Word is inspired by you. It's useful for us for correcting and teaching and rebuking and training us in all righteousness. Father, as we come to this portion, we pray that you'd give us humility, show us what we're not, uh, show us what we do not, and show us what we need. For the glory of your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, this evening we're talking about the consequences of sin. And we're not just talking about any sin, we're talking about the consequences of original sin, the sin of our first parents. We're talking about the fall. Now this chapter is very tightly connected in to uh, what we've been looking at over the past few weeks as we've been making our way through these early chapters of Genesis. Um, And it's taken us a little while to get through them and we've got a lot to cover today. So I wanted to start with a bit of a a roadmap of where we've been and where we're going tonight. Um, So... You can divide Genesis 2 and 3 into about seven scenes based on which people or which actors are kind of within each scene. And if you do that, you actually start seeing that the scenes seem to be paired up in a sort of mirror pattern. So we've got it up there. And then if you look at the content of each of those scenes, you actually find, again, the same kind of mirroring thing going on where the themes in each scene seem to match each other. So if we go to the second slide... You can see uh, the first scene back in chapter 2, we saw a description of paradise, uh, this beautiful world that God has placed humanity into. Uh, And then that leads into thinking about the perfect relationships between uh, men and women and between humanity and their world. Uh, That then led us into where we were last week. We thought about the temptation of the serpent and three lies that the snake and Eve Uh, speak as that temptation is going on. And then Bill led us right into the centre of this uh, structure with with, uh, section D there, where we finally saw the sinful looking and the eating. And if we zoom into section D there, this is just two verses uh, of chapter 3 that we read tonight. Next slide. Uh, You actually find nine verbs, nine action words that are moving the story along in those two verses. And you can see straight away there's a pattern there as well. Four verbs about Eve, um, four verbs about uh, what Adam and Eve did, and right at the centre of this whole uh, couple of chapters of Genesis, just one word in Hebrew, uh, three words up there, and he ate. That is right at the heart of this, this kind of mirror structure. This is where everything that we've been looking at over the past few weeks has led us to. And he ate. And now what we're going to be doing tonight is tracing what happens as a result of that one act of eating. We're going to see what happens in the rest of that verse, and then what happens in the rest of this chapter. Just go back now to chapter two, uh, sorry, to slide two. We're going to see point, point C there. We're going to see God coming along with three questions for Adam and Eve. Uh, we're going to see ruined relationships, and we're going to see ultimately Adam and Eve being exiled out of paradise. So can you see how central what it is we're looking at tonight is? Everything that we've been looking at over the past few weeks leads up to this point. And now what we're looking at tonight is showing how all of that becomes distorted and unraveled. 
This is absolutely crucial material uh, tonight. Um, we're going to leave that slide up. Just, I think it might help to just keep us um, orientated into where we're going over uh, the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, there's a difficulty that I've kind of slowly become aware of as I've been looking at this passage. And that is this. I don't know if we need to be told that we live in a messed up world. Do we? I don't think so. We're pretty familiar with the idea that the world is broken. And most of us here tonight would probably very quickly say, yes, the world is fallen. It had a good beginning, and now it's broken. But I wonder how many of us really feel like the world is fallen. I wonder if, for many of us, it's actually just a fact of life. It's just almost part of what we assume every day as we go into this world, that it's messed up and broken. I don't know if the danger is so much that we're naive about our world, so much as that we maybe are cynical. This last shooting in America, for example, I haven't even bothered to find out about it, to be honest with you, because it happens so often, doesn't it? We're that used to the brokenness of our world. And I wonder if what's happened is we've fallen so far and so fast, we've almost, it's almost like a fall off a skyscraper. We almost can't begin to conceive of where we've come from. We're looking up and trying to understand where we've come from, but it's just so far above us. But tonight what we get to do in this passage is we almost get to see that fall happening again in slow motion. We get to go through the stages and try and understand just what it is that we lost. And I wonder if that's what we really need to to understand tonight. Not so much just how broken our world is, but to just understand just how far we fell so that we don't see our world as just a meaningless set of rubbish, but actually as a tragedy. A world where all the pain and all the hurt actually means something. A world that was so, so, so good and has fallen so far. So I don't know if this appeals to you or not, but we're going to spend most of our time this evening mourning, mourning over what we lost in the fall. I wonder, maybe speaking of my generation in particular, I wonder, maybe we're not very good at mourning these days. Uh, Mark and I were chatting about how it might be good this evening to be kind of a bit more meditative, to reflect a little bit on, on some of the bad news that we've been hearing about last week and then this week. And so Mark's tried to pick some songs that's helped us to try and lament a little bit. But it's not been easy. Uh, there's not that many songs in our catalogue, of particularly the contemporary songs we sing, that really help us to lament, to really express our sorrow at sin, to, to cry out with our emotion at all the pain and all the lostness that there is around us. And you contrast that with, say, the book of Psalms, which is full of lament after lament after lament. And you kind of think, well, maybe we're missing something. I've got a bit of a confession to make, which is that I actually quite like funerals. I don't like the funerals of people that I'm really close to. But somebody that perhaps I know a little bit and I respect, and perhaps their death you know, wasn't all that sudden, they can be really good, I think. Because you go to a funeral and you get reminded what life's all about, don't you? You kind of can't come out of a funeral the same way, I don't think. You realise, okay, this is what's really important. And you get a chance to let your feelings out. You get a chance to, to, to recognise that in this person there was, there was some good and it's a tragedy that their life is over now, nearly always. Every human life that ends, for one reason or another, is a tragedy. 
And funerals mourning helps us to recognize that. And so I think we could maybe particularly benefit from trying to do a bit of that this morning, this evening, trying to mourn what we've lost. So let's, we're just going to work through those, uh, those scenes where it all unravels, um, C, B, and A, in that order. And let's um, pick it up from that crucial phrase at the end of verse 6. And he ate. Then verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, we'd already been told that that when the man and the woman were naked in the garden, they were naked and not ashamed. And now, as soon as Adam eats, there's this immediate sense of shame. And then they hear the sound of the Lord God calling to them in the garden, and they hide. He says, where are you? And Adam says, I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Then comes the original blame game. It was her fault. It was the snake's fault. In my experience, there's, there's probably two telltale signs of a guilty conscience. Uh, disconnectedness and um, defensiveness. We, or I could maybe say I, I don't want to engage with other people when I know I've done something wrong. And I don't want to admit that I've done anything wrong at all. Uh, and that's exactly what our first parents did. They were, defen- they were disengaged, they hid from God. And they tried to pass the buck. They were defensive. Because they were ashamed of themselves. They had guilty consciences. And so this is the first thing that we need to mourn. The fall was a fall into polluted souls. I don't know if you remember, a few weeks back we saw that humanity was made in the image of God. Uh, We were meant to display something of God's knowledge, of his righteousness and his holiness to the world. Uh, We were placed, if you like, between heaven and earth, uh, made to live to God's glory uh, by subduing the world, bringing out its potential uh, and showing its glory off. But instead of living to God, we turned to the earth. We chose to uh, listen to a snake. We chose to embrace the delights of a fruit uh, rather than the glory of God. And as soon as that happened, the way I like to think of this is there was like a gravitational pull downwards. As soon as we turn to the earth, so uh, so Eve reaches out for the fruit and she thinks she's gaining knowledge of good and evil, but all she gains is knowledge that she is now sinful. Instead of being righteous, Adam and Eve become rebels. They want to hide from God's justice. Instead of being holy, they recognize themselves to be unclean and try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Often when we're really embarrassed about something, we'll maybe say, I died inside. Um, And that's what Adam and Eve did. They died inside. Instead of being a beautiful painting reflecting something of God's glory to the world, they became a parody. And they knew it. They were ashamed of who they were. They turned in on themselves. They died inside. And we need to be very, very clear this evening that this really didn't need to happen. We didn't have to experience those feelings of shame and guilt and pollution. I hope nobody here feels so polluted by their sin that they think that that's all there is to them. I guess that would be... I could think that that might happen to some people. And I really hope it doesn't happen 
this evening. I hope there's nobody here that sort of thinks that they were born this way, that they're just so enmeshed in their sin that there's nothing left apart from their, their desires and their guilt at what they've done. Because those feelings aren't natural, ultimately. They're actually the reminder of a great tragedy. Our guilty consciences tell us just how far we've fallen. They make us alive to something much bigger, something much more beautiful than these mucky lives we live in today. So when you experience that feeling of dying inside, as you probably will this week, take it as a reminder that you're not an animal. You're not an animal. You're a fallen son or daughter of Adam and Eve. But we did sin. We did turn away. And so God is going to have to do something about that. And that brings us on to our our second scene there, uh, where God uh, comes and pronounces judgment now. Um, And this is uh, scene B. Uh, This is verses 14 to 23. Now, to understand... um, These curses, you need to understand uh, the two blessings that that God gave humanity originally in chapter 1. Just glance across the page, if you can can see it there, to chapter 1, verse 28. Um, The two blessings are, uh, be fruitful and increase in number, and then fill the earth and subdue it. So multiply and then subdue the earth. And those two blessings are then developed in, in scene B. Uh, we looked a few weeks ago with Frank at the perfect relationships that there were in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to work the garden and to keep it. Uh, Adam sort of names the animals. Uh, everything's beautiful. It's harmonious. And Adam and Eve are made for each other. The man and the woman uh, are, are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's this beautiful harmony in these relationships. And now both of these blessings, the blessing of fruitfulness and the blessing of subduing the earth um, are now both distorted after the fall. Uh, So have a look at verse 16 over the page. Um, God says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the original blessing was increase in people. And wonderfully, that is still going to happen, but now it's going to be accompanied by another kind of increase, same word, an increase in pain. With all these extra people, there will also be lots of extra pain. And particularly for the woman, it will come through pain in bearing children. And if, you're, if you've been involved in that at all, you'll know that that is, continues to this day, despite our medical treatment. And then there's also this pain between the married relationships between uh, man and woman. The gift of marriage is going to be shot through with bad desires and battles for control. Okay, so that's the first blessing now distorted. Uh, the second blessing is then in, in spoken, or the, the second aspect of the blessing, or the second blessing, sorry, is picked up then in verses 17 to 19 to Adam. So to Adam, he said, uh, second part of verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food or eat your bread until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, 
For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there's pain for the woman, and there's going to be pain for the man in his work, in his toil. Instead of peacefully subduing the earth in the garden, it's now going to be a constant battle for survival in the world outside. Uh, We'll still use our God-given powers to plough fields, to bake bread, and to build cities. But we'll also steal fields and bake bombs and build cities that are full of corruption. Whatever progress we make will now come through blood, sweat, and tears. And I think that progress will be temporary because in the battle with the ground, ultimately the, the ground will win. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. The shadow of death hangs over everything we do. So the fall, secondly, was a fall into painful lives. Painful in childbearing and reproduction, painful in our labour and in our survival in this world. And we mourn that, because it really didn't need to be that way. Now this raises the question, I guess, why does God come into a a bad situation and seemingly make it worse? Why does God come in and punish and add these these curses on top of the fall into sin that we already looked at? Well, we need to remember, um, as Drew pointed out a few weeks ago, uh, God isn't kind of angry because people have sort of come and transgressed on his, his turf. The law that God gave to Adam wasn't to protect Um, God. It was to protect Adam. God didn't want us to go off in wrong directions. And when we ate the apple, we decided that our wisdom was better than God's. And that was a huge foolish mistake. Because God knows what is better than we do. He knows what is good and he knows what is evil far, far better than we do. Adam's true wisdom would have been to learn not to eat the fruit. That's why the tree was there so that he could learn not to eat the fruit and to trust God. And so when Adam and Eve break this command, this sin starts to pull them down like gravity. And it was always going to have an effect on our marriages and on our work lives, because sin makes us selfish. It makes us lazy. It makes us stubborn. And those things are always going to make life difficult. And we need to remember that God is never the source of evil in our world. Scripture will sort of speak of God doing something bad, but what it means by that is God is controlling and allowing the the effects of our evil, and he's ordering them for purposes that he knows are good. So in terms of the gravity illustration, you can kind of think of the fall as as being pulled down by gravity. And God is authorizing that. He's allowing that. He's saying, yes, that is right. And he's saying, I'm going to order that and use that for bigger purposes. Uh, Those purposes could be showing God's justice as he rightly uh, allows sin to have its consequences. Or those could be purposes of restoration. And we can see both in this passage. We've seen something of the pain, but there's also restorative purposes in this judgment. If you're married, um, I hope I'm not breaking any confidences to say that your marriage isn't perfect. Um, Some kind of Christian books you read kind of seem to imply that you can have a perfect marriage. Um, And based on this, I don't think you can. Um, If you, well, yeah, Uh, we'll not dispute that, I don't think. 
Um, hopefully, we understand our marriages aren't perfect. And it's not because men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It's just not. It's because we're fallen. And so, we're going to have to fight to stop fighting with each other. We're going to have to crush our sin if we're going to stop trying to crush our partner in our desire to dominate them. And that is a painful, painful thing to try to do. Uh, The poet R.S. Thomas was a Church of Wales minister whose first wife died. And when he was thinking about getting remarried, he wrote a poem uh, asking himself whether he was really ready to go back into marriage again. He asked himself whether he was really willing to strap himself into the electric chair. Because marriage is pretty tough, isn't it? (laughs) Marriage is painful. But it's not painful because of him. It's not painful because of her. It's painful because of her sin and because of my sin. Marriage brings us close up together with our sin. And actually that's good for us, isn't it? And it's the same with our work. I hope you're not expecting this week to be able to really get rid of the weeds. If you've got one of those amazing jobs that allows us to kind of build bridges, make medicines, that is great. We're very thankful for you. We need that. We need to keep our society going, so thank you. But I hope you realise that it's not going to last. The weeds will just keep coming back, won't they? And we haven't yet managed to get to grips with the problem of death. And we can learn from that too. Uh, Calvin's very good on this. He says, um, it's almost like the world is at war with us because we've done the most unnatural thing that you could possibly do in this world. We've gone to war with our creator. And so the thorns and the thistles are a constant reminder to us. We have done something horribly unnatural. We don't deserve to belong in this world. People die out in the hills because this world wars against us. People die in hospitals this winter because the world is at war with us, because we warred with our Creator. So let's, we want to mourn that and we want to use that, don't we? We want to remember what's important in life. Let's remember that our first parents led us away from the Lord God, our Maker. So, we've mourned our fall into polluted souls. We've mourned our fall into painful lives. And then finally, the final section of our passage tonight, um, we are talking about going out of paradise. Verse 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, remember, there were two trees in the middle of the garden, seems to be sort of almost side by side with each other. And if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented a kind of test, are you going to learn wisdom? Then the tree of life seems to have represented the prize. Life, life, life. 
And Adam and Eve have eaten from one of these trees. But the way this passage words it, verse 22, it does seem to suggest that they haven't eaten yet from this tree of life. They haven't claimed the prize because they haven't stood the test. And now they never will because they failed. And so they are going to be expelled from the garden. Now, if we're going to understand what this really means and why uh, this is the worst thing that happens in this whole passage, um, we need to see that the, the paradise that we're speaking about here wasn't sort of, that wasn't the main point, that it was just a beautiful paradise, a lovely garden. And the tree of life was not just a kind of a, a magical potion that allowed you to live forever. So, just to keep you awake, a bit of a trivia quiz. Um, you maybe noticed where the entrance to the garden is uh, on the east side. What else in the Bible do you enter from the east? Anyone want to shout out? The wise men came from the east. Hadn't thought of that. That's, that's, I have to think about whether that fits in with, with what I was thinking about. Any other ones? The temple. Yeah, you enter the temple from the east side. And did you notice what God places at the entrance to the garden? Cherubim. Uh, to protect it. Well, where else do you find cherubim blocking the way? Did I hear anything? Some mutters? The curtain. the curtain in the temple, yeah? It's embroidered with cherubim. And that temple, that temple curtain was thick, wasn't it? That was the, the, the veil, if you like, covering the most holy place. Embroidered with these flaming cherubim, saying, don't come through here. Um, the Garden of Eden actually looks a lot like a kind of a temple, a, a holy place. It's on a mountain or a hill, which temples always are in, in the Bible, um, with rivers kind of running out of it to water the earth. Again, temples always seem to have these rivers coming out of them to water the earth. It's full of precious uh, stones and precious metals. Um, and Adam is described as working the garden and keeping it. And those two verbs are used to describe the priests in Leviticus. Their job is to work and to keep the tabernacle. So, last trivia question. What makes the temple so special? Yeah, it's where God lives, isn't it? This is where you can meet with God face to face and enjoy his presence. This is where the glory is now. With their polluted souls, Adam and Eve are no longer fit to be in God's presence in this temple paradise. They've rejected the opportunity for eternal life with God. That's what the tree of life is all about. It's life with God. And now they can never go back. God slams the door to the Garden of Eden in their face. Um, I've recently had installed in my alleyway uh, alley gates. The council have kind of put these massive gates up and so now if you want to try and get into my back garden, you are going to be confronted with a very big gate. And it kind of clangs shut whenever I've finished doing the bins very satisfyingly with a big kind of a noise. Well, that is nothing compared to what confronted Adam and Eve if they were to try to go back to the tree of life. Cherubim were there with a revolving fiery sword guarding the way. I think the point of the revolving sword is it's going to hit you whichever way you try to get in. The way is now blocked to communion with God. No more face-to-face. -face. No more life in God's presence. No more beauty or glory or joy. 
When Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden, there was no fear or shame. It was joyful, unhindered, open, sweet communion with our Creator. All the riches of this mountain garden with its gentle rivers, its delicious fruit, its precious stones, its variety of animals, its beautiful plants, all of those things were only really glimmers of the glory of God. Adam and Eve didn't need to wonder whether God exists or whether he loved them. They didn't feel spiritually dry. They didn't struggle to pray because those things aren't natural. It's a tragedy that we go through those things. They're a result of our fall, and this is the third thing we're mourning. They're the result of our fall into a godless world. So those are the three things, um, then, that the, the, the fall uh, kind of make, is made up of. Uh, these three things are the consequence of Adam eating that apple. Uh, a fall into polluted souls, a fall into painful lives, and a fall into a godless world. You will not surely die, said the snake. Was he right? <laughs> because one thing you would think at the end of this passage, whatever else has happened that's pretty terrible, Adam and Eve are still breathing, aren't they? But of course, death is much bigger than that. Those things A, B, and C in the first half, they are life. Life with God, perfect relationships in paradise. And those are the things that have been lost. We died inside. We now confronted with painful lives of suffering and death. And we have the living death of a world without God. A world where the person we are made for has barred the way to his presence. We turned to death. But friends, as we have mourned our death, let's rejoice too, shall we? Just for a few minutes now. Because God didn't create us in order for us to die. He made us for life. And our sin will not threaten God's purposes. Even here, right in the middle of this mess created by our sin, the Lord God gives hope to Adam and Eve. The tragedy can be redeemed. And so finally, for just a few minutes now, let's try and see why we should cling to the hope of Christ. Why we shouldn't be cynical. Why actually we can have hope that this tragedy will be restored. There's two things in this passage in particular that this... Um, that we're left looking for as we go into the whole of the rest of the Bible story. And the first one is the hope of a seed. Um, Verse 15 of chapter 3. The Lord God uh, says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, or your seed and hers. He will crush or strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So there's going to be this conflict between the offspring or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, some people have wondered if that's just really talking about how we're all kind of scared of snakes. But I think it's pretty clear that there is more going on. Just have a look at the end of the verse again there. It says, he will strike your head and you, singular, will strike his heel. This conflict isn't about two groups. Ultimately, it's about just two individuals, the seed of the woman 
and this snake, they're going to be in mortal combat. Because when you crush a snake's head, it dies. But when it strikes your heel, you also die. So who is going to be this dying serpent crusher? Well, as Genesis goes on, we find that over and over again, we get these genealogies, these family trees, all describing the offspring of the woman. Each genealogy sort of narrows it down. So you get the sons of Adam narrows down to the sons of Seth. The sons of Seth narrows down to the sons of Noah. The sons of Noah narrows down to the sons of Shem. The sons of Shem narrows down to the sons of Terah. The sons of Terah narrows down to the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham narrows down to the sons of Isaac. The sons of Isaac narrows down to the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob narrows down to the sons of Judah. Genesis describes a search for this offspring of a woman. Who will crush the serpent's head? Who will trample down death by death, to use the words of a very old Christian hymn? Who will be the king who will free us from our enemy, the devil? We all know the answer, I guess. But we still live in Adam and Eve's godless world. We still face painful lives and we still have consciences that are racked with guilt. And so like them, we're going to cling to the hope of a seed. So the hope of a seed and then more briefly, the hope of a way. This second thing is a little bit more subtle, but just look again at the very final uh, verse of our passage over the page again, uh, verse 24. Uh, After he drove the man out, he placed God on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So this idea that there's a way to the tree of life, but it's guarded, does imply that there's still a way to get back to the the tree of life. But it's just not open yet. It's like the alleyway behind my back garden. There is a way, but it's blocked. And so... As we join Adam and Eve, standing outside the garden, looking up at all that we've lost, we mourn and we also cling to the hope of a way back. We cling to the hope of a way. Some way to deal with our polluted souls. Some way to once again stand on God's holy hill with clean hands and a pure heart. And now, friends, Christ has come, and he's opened up a new and living way through his body. And so we can draw near to God. This world isn't perhaps just as godless as I might have made out. We can draw near to God with consciences cleansed, washed by pure water. One day, our Lord Jesus will bring us with resurrected bodies to our Father's house, to the holy city, the dwelling place of God on earth, And there we will eat of the tree of life. And God will be forever praised. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Shall we pray?
Lord, what can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? What can give us life eternal with you? What can bring us to be face to face with you with no shame and only joy? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for sobering us up tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to mourn what we lost in the fall. And thank you for the hope that one day it will all be recovered and it will be better by far. And so, Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm conscious that uh, there was a lot in tonight's passage. I didn't go into everything. So I'm particularly up for chatting to you if you want to discuss anything that we were looking at this evening. Uh, but let me close with a few words from the end of the letter to the Romans. The Apostle says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.